This episode is being recorded out of Shop Talk Podcast Studios in Oak Park, Michigan. For more information, visit www.shoptalkpod.com. What's up, people? Welcome to Unsavory Antics, Volume 55. It's just verse today. Unfortunately, my co-host Judy is stuck in Atlanta partying, but I am not alone today. Go ahead. Introduce yourself, brother. What's going on, good people? It's your boy, James D. Anderson. I am J.D. Anderson, Mr. Be Great With Your Money. Super excited to be hanging out with my boy, Verge, here. Let's get it going. I appreciate you coming in, brother. I really do. This this topic is definitely going to be informational for the young people and especially, you know, everybody who's trying to get back on track Mm financial-wise. So for people who really don't know or may not have heard of you, Tell me what's your background, you know, what's your podcast about? Okay, definitely, man. I am the uh, host, the facilitator of the hashtag Be Great With Your Money podcast. And it's the podcast we talked about business, money, capitalism, and finance. Of course, we're part of the Shop Top Podcast Studio and the Shop Top Podcast Network. So we're just pumping out stuff, man. We're trying to make finance really simple, trying to make it accessible. And look, it's one thing that we're not taught. So we try to make sure that uh, all the content we bring is really rich, really in-depth, and really give people results. Not theory, but stuff that people have actually practiced. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah, I was listening to a couple of your shows not long ago, and I was sending them to my girl because we're trying to figure out, like, what's the best way to, like, budget, credit repair, and it's just like I feel like everything I've tried going up to there was just – it's just stuff that I tried on my own, and it's just failed. Failed. So, yeah. So, <laughs> like – so when you have people come and talk to you about certain things, like, usually what is, like, the layout that you, you give them or, like, what's – What's the information that you need from them first before you can start getting them on that path to success? That's a good question, man. And it's it's a, it's a lot more simpler than really what um, a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. And I try to cheat. I try to uh, kind of teach it as a roadmap, mm-hmm. right? So if I wanted to go somewhere and say, for instance, you know, we wanted to go down to Atlanta, mm-hmm. we know that our ending destination is Atlanta, so we need we know we know we need to hop on I seventy five South, yeah. right? The problem is when people mostly get into starting to fix their finances, they have no idea of what that actual Mm -hmm. end result is, okay? So we start with the end in mind first and then build the plan around that. So, for example, let's say, for instance, I got a person like you, Mm -hmm. and you said your wife, you guys want to actually... Wife, right? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Okay. So, so she's going to want to be wife. Now, All right. I, I, was like, I, was like, I think he said girlfriend, but I'm going to go with wife because I didn't want to say girlfriend and then it wasn't. It was bigger wife. trouble. I got yeah, you. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so um, you and your girl, um, you guys are going to try to do some things financially. Mm-hmm. So it's first of all, what's the end goal? Okay. And it's identifying what that end goal is. Mm-hmm. Just a rule of thumb, most people didn't know that they needed 20 times what they made in a year if they just wanted to retire. Oh, okay. So if you make, say, $60,000 in your household, you need $1.2 million. Mm. And then if we're $1.2 million, then how do we work ourselves back in the amount of time? How much do we need to put aside? How much do we need to budget? What do we need to do to get out of debt? And you build the plan around that goal. Okay. And that's kind of the basic start, just like understanding what personal financial success is because mm-hmm. it's different for everybody. You know, if you have a person, they might be content on having, you know, $400,000 in retirement and some type of income producing assets. Or if you're a person that's a little bit of a higher income earner, you might need to have $2.5 million or $4 million. Okay. So what's that roadmap, how we get there, and then we start that financial GPS on getting you there. Okay. So I heard you say something about budgeting. Mm-hmm. Usually, what is, like, the most common things you see where people make mistakes? Like, 
I know me, like I try to set out a budget for the month, like, okay, this is how much I want to spend here. I know I have my bills. But is that is that even really budgeting or are you just really stating you know where your money is going? That's just stating you know where your money is going. Okay. Um, the biggest mistake that people make with budgeting mm-hmm. is they don't know what their biggest expense is. Okay. And it's kind of a – but we never was taught really what the biggest expense is. And our biggest expense that we have on a monthly basis for most people, especially those who are, you know, working a job and kind of doing what they do, is taxes. Mm. Most people don't – they don't understand that taxes is actually your biggest expense. Yeah. There's really not anything that you spend money on mm-hmm. that's taking just a straight 25 30% of your income. Never thought of it like that. <laughs> See, it's, it's taxes that's always going to be your first expense that we have to understand that that's where our eating the most of our money. Now, if I got 25 30%, will you state of Michigan, let's say, for instance, you're in a 20% tax bracket and you got 4% going to um, – you know, Social Security, I mean, sorry, state of Michigan, they got another 6.5% Social Security, Medicare taxes, all that stuff like that. And then let's say, for instance, you got Detroit tax if you work in the city, that's Mm -hmm. another 1% on top of that. And then you got all the sales tax and everything else you get taxed on. Most people got 30, 35% of their income going to just taxes. Mm -hmm. And they say they're supposed to fix the roads, but I just saw advertising for a governor that says she's about to fix the roads. It's about time we fix the roads. So what I've been paying taxes all this time for, I don't know. (laughs) So once you identify that, I say, okay, now let's start building our life around how can we reduce those taxes and pick up free cash flow. Mm -hmm. Most people are okay with their money. Most people know they got to pay their bills. Most people know they got to pay their expenses. Most people know they got to feed their families. I I don't see a lot of issues with that, Mm -hmm. but their scope is kind of twisted. They believe that the money they don't have access to can't be tapped into. Now, once we tap into that, now we can start setting our budget around that. Okay. Now, when you say that money that you they think they can't tap into, what does that mean? Like, are you talking more like stocks or four hundred one k, or is it something totally different? No, just cash flow. Cash flow. Just okay. just that just that taxes on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. How do we get fifty percent of that back? Okay. And there's different ways to do that, and most people are oblivious to it. And the reason being is um, eighty plus percent of people get a tax refund. And a tax refund is just you simply overpaid your taxes. Yeah. So does it make sense to overpay my taxes on a monthly basis to end up with, you know, a three, four thousand dollar refund while I'm picking up debt and interest along the way? Or should I get that two hundred and fifty dollars back every single month and use that to pay off my credit cards? Okay. See, that's what I mean by that cash flow thing there. All right. So for that, do you recommend like, okay, so you take back your exemptions? Like, you know, some people just go zero if you have if you do claim one or two. Mm-hmm. So what's the best way to get that extra cash flow coming out from that? Read the form. Fill it out. It's four pages. Okay. W-4 form. It just changed per uh, the new president's tax plan. Okay. So it's four pages <laughs> right now. Um, and it's not based upon whether it's you, yourself, your wife, or you have children and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. A single parent, head of household with two kids, they will have nine allowances on their W-4 mm-hmm. instead of three, what they normally have. Mm-hmm. And that's what I end up with the four, five, six thousand dollar refund. Okay. Now people say, well, when I get the refund, I just pay my bills anyway. Well, that's not really the case because we know you're just gonna blow some of the money. Of course. And here's the problem: the government doesn't pay you any interest, right? Mm-hmm. But you go borrow some money from the government, they're gonna want you to pay interest. So I always ask people why you love the government so much. <laughs> so you gotta you gotta fix that first. Okay. And then the second thing is too, you gotta look at how you can minimize that. And that's when you start tapping into investments, you know, tax deferred plans, 
That's when you start tapping into, you know, becoming a sole proprietor, leveraging business expenses against what you actually have. And everybody are doing, every, just about everybody's doing something that can relate to business if they just know how to make their lifestyle a tax deduction. Okay. All right. So, staying with budgeting, so what are usually like some of the smart, like the easy steps for, let's just say, you have a household of three coming in that wants to start a budget for the family? Like, usually, what's like the, the small steps to get them on that right path? Small steps to get them on the right path is number one, putting down where every dollar is going. Okay. Putting down where every single dollar is going. And when you get that particular number, what you can then look at is okay. If I have my groceries here, I have my expenses here, I have my gas and stuff here, good. But then you want to try to free up some money there. And a lot of times, you don't want to go for a stressful budget, mm -hmm. not when you're starting off, okay? So just look at how you can pick up, say, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 300 bucks a month. Not very much. Mm -hmm. Just look and see if you can squeeze out, you know, $5 a day in your budget somewhere. Just squeeze that out. Then what you're going to do is once you get that set, you know where all your money's going, you have a little bit of extra money, put that in an emergency fund. Okay. Those are the first two steps that a person has to do. Because I find as though when an emergency happens for most people, they blow their budget and they can't stay on track. Yeah. So you want to lay out everything, all the money coming in, all the money going out, and just put it on paper. And then when you put it on paper, I guarantee you this, most people who actually put everything on paper, they find about two to three hundred dollars that they don't know what's going <laughs> to anyway. Yeah. So once you identify that, that's your free money right there. Okay. Now you said something about your um, your emergency fund. How much, on average, should somebody keep in an emergency fund? Five thousand. Okay. And the reason why I say that is because um, number one, let's say for instance, you know you total your car today, yep. right? Um, you could. Kind of go buy another car, five thousand dollars. It can get you around, mm -hmm. right? Medical expense, weeks stay in the hospital, five thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Hot water heater, go out in the house. Furnace, go out in the house, three to five thousand dollars. Everything is three to five thousand dollars when it comes down to it. Yeah. So as much as you price the just the normal where things are at, you need to have at least that in your in your pocket. Okay. Now that little small step you're saying, like putting everything on paper, just find out where money is going. For somebody, let's say, who doesn't have three or $5,000 in an emergency fund, is that is that a way for that to help also get there as well? Mm -hmm. Like, is that a little harder for, let's just say, a single person compared to, let's say, two-income household? Well, yes and no. The reason why I say yes, because you got one income. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say no is because if you're single and you don't have any children, it's just you, mm -hmm. you're probably being taxed the highest. Yeah. So when you figure out where your budget is, you have more to tap into than a two-person household, if that okay. makes sense. However, whatever money that you get, just multiply. So if you save 300 bucks a month in your budget, you find $300, and you know you got to get to three to $5,000 in emergency fund. I say five, you can do 3000 but it's got to be somewhere within that range there, you know? Um, for a single person with not kids, three thousand dollars might be okay. You got children, you might need to have the five thousand dollars. What I recommend, but you know, you got the three hundred bucks. It's gonna take you ten months mm -hmm. to get to it, or you do even more and supercharge that thing. Yeah. Okay. So looking at okay, so I know a lot of people when they're saying, "All right, five thousand dollars, I got all these bills, student debt, I got to take care of." I've noticed debt for some reason is like holding people back from a lot of things, like. Mm, I can't absolutely. put towards this. I can't do this. 
how important is to okay, let's say pay down your debt, and but how badly can it hurt you if you take debt on for a long time? Great question. So, with individuals prolonging debt, mm-hmm. um, it it can hurt you over time with interest rates. Okay. With the exception of if you got a like a zero percent interest car loan, or if you have a three percent mortgage, you're not going to pay very much in interest. But when you start getting into the student loans and the credit cards and the other things like that, you have enormous amounts of interest that you pay into. So not getting it paid off rapidly, you will pay more over time. However, as I said, with anything with personal finance, if something were to happen and you don't have that emergency fund Mm -hmm. set up, you will not pay that student loan bill or you will not (laughs) pay that credit card bill. So, because you got to take care of yourself, you got to eat, right? Yeah. So, you want to put yourself in that in that regard to think about, okay, who's more important, my debtors or myself? And if my financial situation is the most important, then hey, let's go ahead and fix myself, get my money set aside first, mm-hmm. and then I'll get with them later. Okay. So, it can be detrimental, but with regards to the comparison of what you're doing to fix your budget in your own in, in your own. Um, I guess you could say your own financial sphere, it's not going to be detrimental over time, you know, 10, 12 years plus. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to your second point of people saying that debt's holding them back, absolutely debt's holding them back. But once we get that emergency fund built, we can go a little bit more aggressive on the debt because we got money in the bank. Okay. So do you recommend that emergency fund be put in place first before you really start tackling debt hard? Absolutely. Okay. Because if you exhaust all your cash flow and the transmission go out, your debt's going, you know, your debt's going to come after you anyway, exactly. right? You know, they're going to, no matter how how hard you've been paying and good you've been paying, mm-hmm. they're still going to hit you with negative payment history because mm-hmm. you missed for two months because you had to pay for your, it's still going to take down your exactly. credit score. I'd rather for you to have a cash on hand first and you be safe before you try to get somebody else straight. Okay. How do you feel about those commercials you see with debt consolidation or you see, you know, the rise in people filing Chapter 7 early in their life. Mm-hmm. Is, is that just people just really just giving up or not trying to find their own way to, you know, get rid of their debt or they feel like, okay, this is probably the only way out. And usually what is like the pros or cons for somebody filing chapter seven? Okay. Great question. So when a person goes into bankruptcy, the biggest con that's out there um, personally for me is that you got everybody all up in your business. Yeah. That's the number one <laughs> there, you know, and you're kind of stuck, and since you got eyes on you, you can't really make plays in business, which mm-hmm. kind of sucks. You can't really make plays for yourself and making more money. You know, everything is being scrutinized, and that's the biggest disadvantage to all of that. However, I get it. If you're in a position, um, especially for people who have been married and, say, one spouse jacked up everything, but it was both in you guys' name and you can't handle it, it I get it. Mm-hmm. In some sense of regards, it is very fruitful to, to do that, to, to sever yourself off financially and get to where you need to be. On the other hand of it, um, with regards to the bankruptcies, I do think that some people are filing bankruptcy a little too early. Mm-hmm. Filing, I've seen people file bankruptcy on $35,000, $40,000 worth of debt. Well, if you kind of think about it, you can get aggressive on that and not deal with the negative impacts of having bankruptcy on your credit or different aspects, like I say, with having the lawyers involved in all your money. Um, So you got to look at it for what your financial scope is. I think what happens is is that most of us say, hey, you know, and I'm not talking to anybody who filed bankruptcy. I'm just telling from the people I've talked to. It's kind of throwing your hands up 
and saying, well, I can't do it. I got to file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And this idea that, oh, well, you know, a lot of people say, well, um, other races file bankruptcy and then do it all the time. They do, but they also have a bunch of cash on hand. Yeah. The problem in our in our community is that we'll file bankruptcy, but we ain't got no cash. That's that's the difference. So it, it hurts us a little bit more than what I've seen in the other play. Now, debt consolidation is just simply a business, mm-hmm. okay? We're going to finance and clear your debts. We're going to hit you with a lower payment, but maybe with a little bit higher interest. Since you can make the payments, you're going to ride the payments off because you believe they're helping you. And at the end of the day, they're just going to fee you to death. Debt consolidation is literally the fee business, mm-hmm. just like banking and retail banking. It's the fee business. So you always got to look at it. Okay, how much money I got going out? What's it actually going towards my financial plan? And how much I need to keep for myself? Okay. So, yeah, I have some uh, friend, 24, file for bankruptcy. Right. And I'm just like, yo, it's, it's, there has to be other ways. And their main response was, well, you know, it'll fall off in seven years off my credit report. And I'm just like, I don't think that's just, like, the smartest <laughs> thing. Because, exactly. like you said, it's, it's holding because now they want to get a house. I'm like, how are you going to try to get a house? And you just file for bankruptcy. Right. Unless there's some type of programs that allow that to happen. But, like, when my mother did it, it was a, a whole different ball game. Like, she, she legit did it. But it did stop a lot of things she wanted to do. Even right. when she moved, she still had to wait to actually purchase her house until everything was on the clear. Correct. So that's why I was just trying to figure out, like, what everybody doing it. I feel like people are just doing it just so they don't have to pay their stuff going out. But they don't realize, like you said, all eyes are on you now to see is this. Because can a Chapter 7 be reversed? Over time, yeah, you can okay. get bankruptcies off. I mean, you got to go through different things. So it's it's all about, really all about credit and credit reports. is all about inaccuracies, okay. right? Everything's about inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. That's really what the credit game is. If anybody was to pull a credit report right now, unless you recently went through and repaired your own credit, you know, TransUnion's going to say you said you owe this, and Experian's going to say you had this, and really you didn't have either one of them, but they don't even match up. Yeah, That's literally what credit repair is, is disputing debts that you have on your credit report okay. and negotiating and making sure that you can get, um, you know, things paid off in goodwill to get negative payment history if you admit that it is your debt or nego- that's that's all it is. It's just really it's a paperworks game. And that's all a credit work a credit um, score is and the, the credit reports are. Are just paperwork. So if a person's okay with having that blemish on their paperwork, then they're gonna strictly do it because they don't look at it as far as leverage is concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, I can guarantee that most people that's filing bankruptcy at an early age are probably not looking to leverage business credit in the future. They're probably not looking to leverage your credit to buy property or to get into business Mm -hmm. and other things that your personal credit is actually leveraged first before other different types of forms of credits and loans and things of that nature. Okay. Yeah. And credit was the next thing I was going to talk about. See, because now I'm like, I'm in the process of trying to do it. I know a lot of people are trying to process of repairing their credit. Mm -hmm. What is the, what is the, what is the, what is the, the, the number one step into getting that going? Like, is it, going through your actual credit report and disputing things that may not be accurate. Kind of a lot of people just look at it and say, okay, this is what I owe. Mm-hmm. How often is that, like, that's not really the case. Like, a lot of things really should be disputed because it could be, let's say, we'll say Sprint claim you owe $300, and you already know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So is that the main thing is going through and making sure everything is accurate and trying to dispute as much as possible? Inaccuracies are very, very common on credit reports. And since you have three different people reporting on just one person, it's bound to have some inaccuracies. Okay. When you just think about it, right? You got a FICO score, and then you got your, you know, you got your different, you got three different credit reporting agencies, mm-hmm. right? We, 
we can't even get DTE, <laughs> you know, to report right. Yeah. And it's just one party to one party. Yeah. Now you got three parties to one party. A lot of times it doesn't line up. Mm -hmm. So, yes, going through your credit report, finding those inaccuracies. Um, and inaccuracies can be that you actually um, paid the money and not necessarily like it's a wrong debt, but they might not have your payment history on there. Okay. And your payment history also attributes to how well your credit is. You know, um, it can also, you know, you got negative payment history, it can impact you. Another thing is to reporting the correct amounts of credit that you might have open on different credit lines. You know, that that's a big impact with your credit utilization. So you want to first get your credit reports and you can get free annual credit reports. You can get you get all three of them for free one time a year. Go through, and the first step is go through and review it. Mm -hmm. Go through and review it with a fine-tooth comb, not Credit Karma, not some credit monitoring service. Get your actual credit report, get it mailed to you, get the paper, and just go through it. And most people can find some type of inaccuracies on there. Okay. And where can they uh, go to get their actual credit report? I know a lot of people use Credit Karma and think that's, yeah. that's the word of God. Um, this free annual credit report, I think it is. Okay. Free annual credit report. And uh, as we're going through, I'll make sure I pull it up and I'll plug it in the end, in the end for okay. people can go to it. Okay. All right. So, so if I was to come to you and say, okay, my goal is to have a credit score within the next year. I want to, I want to at least get it to seven hundred. Mm -hmm. That's just what I want to do within a year. But I'm working with, let's say, you know, I got student loans, uh, car car note payments, mortgage, and everything like that. What are, what are the small steps to help get it up? Because you'll notice some people make their payments on time, they feel like it raises it three to four points. But as soon mm -hmm. as you miss one payment, you feel like it drops 25. Absolutely. So what's like usually the best way? Is it open up another line of credit, um, getting your credit card utilization down? Like What are, what are like the best ways to, to see the most at your credit score go up? Um, really, you want to look at what makes up your credit score, right? Okay. And that's a great question. So 30% of your credit is your credit score if we're talking about the actual numbers, yep. made up, um, you got 30% from amounts owed, 35% payment history. Okay. So a lot of times that's one of the big things when you have a negative payment history, it takes up the most percentage of what makes up your credit score. So when you get a ding on that, your score is going to drop. Okay. Um, and the reason being is though, even though they're making the payments, they're probably not making enough to reduce that, that credit amount that's out there. Mm -hmm. So if you're just making a minimum payment, yeah, you got good positive score, but since you're not knocking that number down, you're not picking up that other 30% that I talked about that amount's owed there. 10% yeah. uh, is new credit. So okay. actually opening up new credit is only going to impact your score 10%. 15% is length of credit history, and 10% uh, is in cre credit mix. So really, you got 65% of your credit score tied up in credit utilization and payment history. Mm. So a lot of people say, well, just open up a new card. It's going to help get your credit up. It's only going to impact your score 10%. It's negligible. Okay. It's literally, it's, it's almost the smallest out of everything. Okay. It's the history and it's the amount that you have out there in credit utilization. All right. So you won't really see a big, let's say a big drop in your score. I'm sorry, a big uh, raising your score. Let's say if you have bad payment history, mm -hmm. but you just, for some reason, let's say you get a nice tax refund. Your first thing you want to do is just pay off all your credit cards, just make them zero balance. Mm -hmm. That's not going to really just shoot it automatically up if your payment history is still crap, right? Well, it's going to reduce the amount you have owed. Okay. So it could. It could, it could definitely go up mm -hmm. because your credit utilization, if you, say, owed $10,000 and you had $10,000 worth of credit and then now you just knocked it down to two grand, mm -hmm. now you had 20% credit utilization. Okay. So you can see your score go up pretty good. 
um, you're going to lack on the payment history because if you haven't been paying on them religiously or if you just took them down and you don't have that history over time and you're making the payments, it, it might go up a little bit because you made the payment, but it's not going to it's not going to show that prolonged mm-hmm. history. And because, you know, your payment history there also goes into the length of time you had the credit, they kind of go hand in hand there. Okay. So yes and no, I guess you can say that. Um, and it all, and like I say, it depends on the type of debts, the amounts of debts, and a whole bunch of technical stuff too. But that utilization and that payment history, that's those are the two big parts there. Okay. So is that why they always say it's not good to just pay your card off and completely every month, always leave something on there, that way you can still always make a payment? Well, some people say that, and some people disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I'm in a camp that disagrees with that. Okay. And the reason being is because when you pay interest, you know, if you just roll in the balance, you're going to get hit with finance charges and interest yeah. charges. That's just, interest is just the penalty you have for the right to owe somebody some money. Mm-hmm. So I'm not in the camp of wanting to have interest. I don't think anybody should have interest because you're literally paying just for the right to pay somebody money. Interest is, is fictitious. It does nothing. Okay. So if you pay it off every single 30 days, I'm cool with that. You're still making the payment, but you're managing a little bit more on your credit utilization by keeping it lower. And on the cash flow side, you're not missing out on it. You're not paying interest out that you shouldn't be paying. Okay. So for someone who's trying to rebuild their credit, is there what's like the best credit card to get for that situation? Or is, is it like a... What is what is the loan I'm thinking of? A lot of people get the um Yeah, you got credit builders loan. Okay. Um <clears throat> really it's um Or is a loan from like a credit union usually best than like a credit I card. I mean they I mean you can go with something if you want to build it up mm-hmm. and you kinda it depends on how low you're going from low, right? Okay. If you're going from like low five hundreds or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, you might want to look at getting yourself a credit builder's um, credit card or a secure credit card. And what that is is you just have a credit card that you actually secure with physical funds yep. from a bank. And that way you can use that. And then the bank is basically saying you back it up with cash. So you are, we're going to get our money regardless, mm-hmm. but using something like that. Okay. Um, and typically stick within your realm of what you know you can handle. So, again, credit utilization is a big part of your score. So, you know, if you can get some new credit, get a couple hundred bucks. But then, you know, you want to keep it using maybe $60 a month Mm -hmm. because you want to keep that utilization low and pay it off every single month. Now you're building up payment history. Now you're keeping your credit utilization low and just quiet as it kept. Once you start increasing your score, increasing your score, increasing your score, you're going to get offered more credit because the credit credit business is the banking business. So start off with something small like that. Build it up. I wouldn't necessarily, unless you got to make a play and you need like a car or something like that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't use a vehicle to say, "Hey, I'm gonna build my credit off an of auto loan." Okay. That's just me personally. I like to secure and having my money more than I care about credit. So I wouldn't tell anybody to do that because I wouldn't do that. But I would start off with something small, three, four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. If something were to hit the fan, you can bounce back right back on that and clear that card yeah. off. All right, and what's um. I know it may be different compared to people's um, their how much credit card they have or you know the amount. But what is the credit card utilization rate usually is like? What is the percentage you need to be at to be like in good standing? Uh, most people, it's really going to be uh, about thirty uh, percent. Okay. Really, you want to be below twenty percent, and really, the people with the best scores have twelve percent and below. Okay. So you got a thousand. You spending. The, most people have a thousand. They're going to spend anywhere between one hundred twenty to two hundred dollars mm-hmm. on that. 
Um, you know, say some people say 30%. It's a little high, but you want to keep it well below 20% to be on the safe side. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So next thing I want to talk about is something that a lot of people choose not to get, which is life insurance, which I do not <laughs> understand. That. I feel like GoFundMe accounts have taken over life insurance policies. <laughs> right. So explain to people how simple cheap it really is <laughs> to get life insurance. All right. Short, quick, smart, smart Ella answer. Okay. You can get a two if you're in your thirties, you can get in your health, you get a two hundred fifty thousand dollar term life insurance policy mm-hmm. for twenty years for twenty five bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what and if you go beyond that, you can probably get a half a million dollars term policy for thirty years with just about any insurance company for probably $50 or less a month if you're a healthy person. So less than $100 a month, you could probably cover yourself, your significant other in the household, and you guys can have half a million to a million dollars in life insurance. Simple. Very simple. Um, You want to look at life insurance as what I call income replacement. Okay. Okay. So, of course, if you if you only can afford a couple bucks a month on life insurance, get something, mm-hmm. right? But you want to look at life insurance as income replacement. So I can use my own my own personal um, situation with me and my wife. So if I have a person that have a six figure household, say they make a hundred thousand dollars, right? Let's say for instance I pass away. Okay, once I pass away, my household doesn't have that hundred thousand dollar income anymore. Mm-hmm. So. If you don't have that income anymore in that household, then now I got to take into account what my earning potential would have been if I was still living okay. here. So I'm going to at least want to go 10 times what I'm making a year. Because now what my wife can do, if I pass away, she gets the million dollars. And then she can take that money and invest it into, say, a stock mutual fund, get 9 10% on that, and live off the interest off the money and never have to touch the actual lump sum of the policy. Okay. So she teaches, she treats it as income replacement for your business. If you have a business that make $25,000 a year, you might want to get an extra $250,000 policy just to pay upon that because that's all income and cash flow that's no longer going to be there if it's tied to you. Now, if you have a business that has a lot of leverage and residual income, that's fine. That can, that can keep churning. Mm-hmm. But I would still get it as income replacement based upon what a yearly basis will be. You treat it like income replacement you'll start looking at the bigger picture down the line. You know, it's essentially you're not going to be here to earn anymore. You're dead. Mm-hmm. So where is my family? What are my family supposed to eat off of? What are they supposed to do? And then that's how people can kind of get their ratios right. At least 10 times what they make in a year. I would say 20 times, but, yeah. you know, it gets a little expensive mm-hmm. at that yeah. point. But, you know, at least at least 7 to 10 times what you make in a year. Try to stretch yourself to that. It's very important. Okay. You know, um, true story. Yesterday it was a high speed car chase, right? And somebody sideswiped me and struck my car. Okay. Car, car. I mean, don't know if it's totaled or not yet. Yeah. Tomorrow's a holiday, so you know, just sitting at the shop. You know, mechanic's not gonna look on it to Thursday, mm-hmm. so I have no idea what's gonna happen to it, right? Um, but let's say, for instance, something were to happen to me and I wouldn't physically be here talking to you. Yeah. You know, where's all my income potential for my business, from what I do on a daily basis, the other projects I have going on? Where's that income gonna come mm-hmm. from? And that's where, and I, and leaving my wife a twenty thousand dollar policy, that's not going to sustain the household. No. So you got to have enough to where you can invest it, live off the interest from the investments, off the principal made from the actual life insurance payment, and that's the wealth strategy that families use that a lot of people don't tell. Mm-hmm. I feel like because I've never heard that income replacement used like that because mm-hmm. you hear a lot of people just saying 
leave enough to bury the person, everything like that, and they may not even, or leave enough <laughs> for the family. Like you said, fifty thousand dollars and fifty thousand dollars in a year. You know, you can really spend that in a few months. Really, it's not. I've never looked at it like that. Like you take what you make, and then like you said, you because. You're gone. Like I said, your your income potential earnings is no longer there. And and it's a ratio there, right? Mm-hmm. We're speaking from the eyes of people in their twenties, thirties, and things like that. Now, if you're sixty years old and you've got your investments and mm-hmm. your pension is cashed out, if you have a pension or your four hundred one k is cashed out, you have the assets, you have the real estate, you have the passive income, you're self insured at that point. Okay. The wife can do okay because you know your investments is making you a hundred thousand dollars a year. Or fifty thousand dollars a year, or your, you know, your four hundred one k that you have set aside is paying your family sixty thousand dollars a year. You're self-insured at that point. You don't need insurance. Mm-hmm. You know, you had money in the bank when you passed away. But the idea that you know we're gonna leave fifty thousand dollars and we're gonna spend ten of it just putting me in the ground, it is not gonna do anything. Yeah. The, the rest of the forty gonna be tore up after the family be fighting exactly. over who's supposed to get what. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, that fifty thousand dollars is is gone. Mm-hmm. And you leave your family nothing but debt or, you know, that's that's the worst thing. Mm-hmm. So get something, okay. you know, if you get whatever you can get, if all you can afford is $7 a month, then, you know, to get his $50,000 policy, turn policy, then do that. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because at least you left something. Um, but you really want to focus on income replacement. And the earlier you do it, the healthier you are, the cheaper it is. Under $100, you can get yourself covered, your family covered, million dollars probably love a term policy. Mm-hmm. And I guess I say term, so 20 to 30 years, right? But if you're out here working for 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week for 30 years, and you ain't got no money at the end of the deal, then you missed the boat along that whole <laughs> way. Yeah. Just saying. What is the policy where I think after a certain amount of time you can buy into it? What is it? Is that a long term? It's a whole life policy. It's a whole life policy. So, so whole life policies, um, I got a hard no stand against them. I don't agree with them mm-hmm. because the premiums are just astronomical in the beginning. Okay. And most people just don't have the money, right? So a $500 in a whole life policy could build me some cash value, but I believe in the, the I guess you say, the methodology of buy term, invest the difference. Mm-hmm. So buy what you need to cover you at that same amount. Forget the cash value. Take the money and invest it in yourself. Invest it in a business. Put it in some type of investment. And that's typically going to grow faster. And when you get the whole life policy, I don't have to borrow the money. See, the key thing is about the whole life policy. And I know if, if people are listening who are insurance salesmen, look, you got your view. I got my view. It's yeah. a straightforward view we're sharing here. But I just speak from facts. If anybody was to Google a whole life policy and what was supposed to happen with the, you know, what happens with the cash value when you pass away, then they know why I kind of have a hard nose against it. Okay. So, because <laughs> I was talking to one of my uh, friends, he was saying. He talked to an insurance guy who does he he recommends whole life policy because like with I guess he looked at the structure of I guess like you know some you know wealthy white families they'll get a mm-hmm. whole life policy for their child as soon as they're born absolutely and then I think when they hit 22 23 you can buy into that and that way they can have their money for college or first car or whatever they can be right so I'm just like when I was looking at like you said the premiums and the amounts you're paying a month I'm like well you said one key thing. You said wealthy white, white families. families. <laughs> you wealthy, it's a different game. Mm-hmm. Investment grade life insurance can be a great thing for people who already have money. The problem is, is that you only got 4% of the people out here actually having money and 1% of people actually at that level, which is why they call it the one percenter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, on a we- wealthy, it's a whole new ball game to open up, you yeah. know? 
But if you're not in that case, then you don't occupy that spectrum. See, people think that when it comes down to investment-grade life insurance, they say, well, you know, wealthy families do it. Yes, because they're wealthy families. They do different things because instead of you're paying taxes on $50,000, they're paying ta- they're trying to eliminate taxes on a $100 million estate, mm-hmm. a $10 million estate, a $500 million estate. They're doing things differently because, you know, honestly, 1% on a $100 million estate is a million dollars. So it's a larger stake of the game than what you're playing at mm-hmm. for most people. Not to say you can't get there. It's just you might not be there right now. Yeah. Okay. Last thing we'll touch on, because I know we got run out of time. Mm-hmm. How much should somebody be investing into retirement funds or stocks, anything like that? I know you have some companies that offer, you know, stock purchasing options, 401k, you know, will match you 5 6%. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, they look at, well, I don't want 5% taken out of my check and everything like that. Like, What's what's the best ways to you know maximize all those earnings, especially since it's free money being matched? Right. Great question. Get that a lot. And um, really, what what ends up happening is this: you want to at least match at least you want to at least put in at least what you can what you can maximize on the match. Okay. Right. If you're using say a company four hundred one k, you want to look at it from that regard because um, that's just free money. On the second end of things, the good thing is is that is back to the GPS thing. What's your end goal in mind? If you plan on to be invested in this fund for 20 years and you want this amount of money, mm-hmm. then you have to put this amount in. But for starters, person should at least do 5%. Okay. All right? That's a good, it's a good stretch to get you something moving. And usually, typically, companies match up to 4%, 3%. So you usually are getting somewhere between, you know, 7 to 10% contribution into your, into your actual um, 401k. After that, you work your way up. One of the key strategies that I tell people, especially people that work with me, is this. Every cost of living adjustment raise that you get, the 1% to 2% to 3% raise per year, it's not going to make a big amount change on your uh, pay stub. Nope. So just roll that 3% over to your 401k. Okay. Roll that 2% over to your 401k. So if you're investing 5%, now you invest 7%. You invest in 7%, now you invest in 9%. Keep rolling that over. See, think about it like this. What if, you know, as long as we've been working on the, on the field, what if we were taking every single little raise we got and dropped it, I'm just speaking little raises, yeah. and dropped into our investment account? Then ultimately what's going to happen, you're going to get more of a tax deduction, which is going to save you more money on taxes, mm-hmm. and you got more money in your investment account. And that's what you call a financial strategy. Okay. At least 5% that you got to do. Um, I just don't see any other way how anybody's going to get anything done unless they do that much. Mm-hmm. You know, now if you got really, really low income, you know, you might have to do a little bit more. Okay. You know, um, you know, you're not going to get wealthy at putting fifty bucks into into the investment account. You know, unless you're doing it for fifty years. Okay. And who we don't have that amount of time. No. Nah. So, um, do you recommend Roth accounts? I think Roth accounts are good. Um, it's it's to your situation what you have going on. Okay. Um, the tax laws have changed a bit here. So you are going to have higher standard deductions, but no longer have itemized. Well, itemized deductions are capped at ten ten thousand dollars as far as taxes are concerned. But the big thing is, is that you don't have um, exemptions for children anymore. That's off the table. Yeah. So the four thousand dollars that people used to get for you know taking care of kids on their taxes, you mm-hmm. don't get that anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that being said, my opinion used to always be that 
Roth accounts are great, you know, because you get to build, um, you get the growth tax free and everything down the line. It's got a low contribution limit of only like usually around 5K per year. So I think it's great, but it's kind of changed a little bit because I think where the tax plan is right now, business owners are going to win. Everyday average working Americans, they've lost. I think I know that's our strong opinion, but they took a lot of deductions away from people on the mortgage interest stuff, um, or like I say, just the exemptions. You know, people that got high income but have a lot of kids, like they, man, they're they're going to feel it come this tax season. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that being said, I'm kind of shifting more to maximizing the tax deductions and using the plans like the 401k or the traditional IRA. So it sounds like a lot we need to also brush up on these new tax laws because a lot of stuff you said I, I've heard from my tax lady this year, but I didn't know it was really – it's getting rough. Well, you know, we make the joke about the administration running a company like Death Row, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it's the truth, though. Yeah. They are running it like a business. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the cabinet, the administration in total, they're business owners. So I'll just say it from, from this point on. Like, if I'm a business owner and I got the power and authority to make things move, I'm going to do what benefits myself mm-hmm. and my people around me. So I'm going to make it more pal- palpable for business owners. Gotcha. And I'm going to throw sound bites in there for people that's not in that sphere. Mm-hmm. That's just my own honest personal opinion, but it's backed up by facts. For example, um, for children, right? Uh, you can pay your children a wage through your business. It used to be $6,000. Now it's $12,000 mm-hmm. on a tax deduction. And then you also can pay your children's tuition out of different, uh, different tax scenarios that you used, that you previously couldn't do. So when you start looking at all these things, like they're setting it up for business owners. Why? Because who's in the administration now is made up of business yeah. owners, and that's what they're doing. Hmm. Well, man, I appreciate you coming on, man, because you dropped a lot of stuff that – I wasn't too sure of. I use a lot of my little situations to to, to see what's like the best way, and mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, the listeners can definitely take something from it. But I didn't want them to have everything. That way, they can also subscribe to your show and get get the full pie. So go ahead, drop your social media where they can find your podcast. You know, I guess you say he's gonna drop some website links or anything like that. Yeah, let them know all of it. For sure, for sure. Well, this is your boy James D. Anderson at I am J D Anderson, Mr. Be Great With Your Money. We have the hashtag Be Great With Your Money podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. So you guys can check it out. The episodes are packed full of content. So bring your notes. Make sure you jot it down. Pay attention. Listen, 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 listen. And of course, you're going to get everything that you need to do to be great with your money. I appreciate you having me on, Verge. Of course, man, it's been a fun time. I love hanging up here with the Shop Talk Podcast yeah, Network. Man. You guys can follow me on everything, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at IamJDAnderson. That's how you can contact me. at. And I did owe you guys an actual website on where to go get your credit report. So I got that guy right here in his annualcreditreport.com. And you get free three, you get the three credit bureaus free credit report once a year. So Equifax, Experian, TransUnion at annualcreditreport.com. You guys can go ahead and get that squared up. And if you are interested in taking a look at some of my do-it-yourself credit repair tools, you can go to jda-solutions.com, jda-solutions.com forward slash credit. Uh-huh. And do you do also personal finance advising to, um, for individuals as well? I do more or less set people up with software, train them, coach them. I want people to see it themselves. Gotcha. So everything I do is do-it-yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you how to do it, but you're going to do it yourself. Gotcha. All right, cool. Um, 
You know my social media is hey underscore verge on Twitter and Instagram. Follow the show on Savory Antics at on Instagram and SavoryAnticsPod.com. Uh, Judy will be back next week. Uh, once again, brother, I thank you for coming on, man, dropping a whole lot of knowledge for us, especially because, you know, wealth is, is one thing I think everybody's trying to obtain. And I think it's important to to highlight just the small barriers that a lot of people have to overcome just to get to that path of success. Yeah, so really appreciate you coming in. But as always, guys, you know, keep your liquor strong, your laughter long, and your antics unsavory. See you next week.